where the battle rages. Today, that little point of conflict is the inerrancy of the word of God written. The battle rages not among those in the liberal tradition where the issue is already settled, but among those who profess to be evangelicals. It is among them that infiltration has come, and it is among them that the decision will determine the direction of evangelicalism for the future. Inerrancy right now is the crucial issue among evangelicals. Richard J. Coleman expressed this fact plainly when he said, Surprisingly enough, the discussion of biblical inerrancy swirls around us with almost the same ferocity as in the 1880s and the 1930s. The stance was taken then, namely by B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Mason, that the traditional view of biblical inerrancy should not be compromised by the promulgation of a limited view of inspiration. Well-fought issues do not die easily, and such is the case with the interrelationship between scriptural inerrancy and its inspiration. The difficulties faced by Warfield and Mason in defending a strict view of inerrancy are still with us, if not more intensely, and thus the proponents of some kind of limited inspiration are still with us. The debate, however, has often been clouded by imprecisions and generalities. Thus my purpose is to unpack some of the commonly used terms in this controversy leading to a more careful definition of alternatives. End of quote. Coleman's conclusion, however, is a verdict against biblical inerrancy. Scripture, he says, is inerrant in whatever it intends to teach as essential for our salvation. Plenary inspiration and inerrancy are not synonymous or inseparable. Unequivocally, the doctrinal verses teach the inspiration of Scripture as a whole, but to impose on all Christians the deduction that plenary inspiration automatically guarantees total inerrancy is unwarranted. The gift of inspiration was granted not to ensure the infallibility of every word and thought, though it did accomplish this in particular instances, but to secure a written word that would forever be the singular instrument by which man learns and is confronted by God's will. Evangelicals have the choice either to continue to react defensively or to advance positively a modified yet firm concept of inerrancy. We need only to return to the Briggs case to note again that Briggs swore fidelity to the statement that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And this is neither more nor less than Coleman is doing. The issue is surely the same issue that was at stake in the Warfield-Briggs confrontation, in the Mason situation, and in the present-day struggle. Inerrancy is important, but what is equally important is what happens once inerrancy is scrapped. And this is where Coleman, for example, throws no light on the matter. Coleman is advocating limited inerrancy. This term is meaningless. It is nonsense. The sooner we realize this, the sooner we will see the issue of inerrancy in its proper perspective. And at last, every deviation away from inerrancy ends up by casting a vote in favor of limited inerrancy. Once limited inerrancy is accepted, it places the Bible in the same category with every other book that has ever been written. Every book contains in it some things that are true, and what is true is inerrant. Only two things remain to be determined once this position is acknowledged. The first is what proportion of the book is true and what proportion false. It may be 90% false and 10% true, 
or it may be 90% true and 10% false. The second thing that needs to be determined is what parts of the book are true. Since the book contains both error and falsehood of necessity, other criteria outside of the book must be brought to bear upon it to determine what is false and what is true. Whatever the source of the other criteria, that becomes the judge of the book in question. Thus the book becomes subordinated to the standard against which its truth is determined and measured. If inspiration means anything, and if inspiration pertains to the totality of the Bible, then we must see what limited inerrancy means. First it means that something outside of and above the Bible becomes its judge. There is something that is truer and more sure than Scripture, and whatever it is, it has not been inspired by God. So a non-inspired source takes precedence over an inspired Bible. Second, it leaves us in a vacuum without any basis for determining what parts of the Bible tell the truth and what parts do not. For the evangelical, the genius of inspiration lies in the fact that it disposes of these problems and provides for us a book that we can trust, so that when we come to it, we do not need to do so with suspicion, nor do we need to ask the question, is this part to be trusted? This does not deliver us from the need to examine Scripture and determine what it teaches, but it does give us a word we can trust and leaves us with the assurance that once we have gotten its true meaning, we can test every other book against the Bible and not let other books determine the truth of Scripture. Errancy leads to further concessions. I have already demonstrated that once inerrancy goes, it leads, however slowly, to a further denial of other biblical truths. In fairness, it should be said that there are evangelicals who at this moment have not yet gone beyond a modest denial of inerrancy. They are sound on the other major doctrines of the Christian faith, but they have made concessions rising out of their denial of inerrancy nonetheless. These concessions do not bear on essential doctrines other than biblical infallibility, which is a biblical doctrine. Among evangelicals there are those who accept the concept of two Isaiahs, despite the clearest teaching of the New Testament that Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 was written by the prophet Isaiah. There are evangelicals who believe that Daniel was written around 168 B.C. after the events described in the book rather than before. They do this despite the claim of the book itself to have been written by Daniel and before the events took place. There are evangelicals who do not believe in a historical Adam and Eve and who regard the first 11 chapters of Genesis as non-historical. There are evangelicals who doubt that the apostle Peter penned Second Peter even though the text of the letter claims that he did. There are those who do not think Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, even though the inscription claims that he did. There are evangelicals who regard the book of Jonah as a novella rather than history. The Historical Critical Methodology There are evangelicals like George Ladd who take exception to the historical critical methodology, but there are also those who call themselves evangelicals who have embraced this methodology. The presuppositions of this methodology, as we have already seen, go far beyond a mere denial of biblical infallibility. They tear at the heart of scripture and include a denial of the supernatural. 
Once we discard miracles, we automatically open the door that leads to a denial of the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At the center of the controversy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the Southern Baptist Convention lies the issue of the historical critical methodology. The battle involves more than the view that inconsequential parts of Scripture are inaccurate. It involves the fact that once the historical critical methodology is accepted, it takes one further down the road, far beyond inerrancy in its simple stage. It has in it all the seeds that lead toward apostasy. This point cannot be emphasized too strongly. It is hardly possible for those who embrace the historical critical approach not to know in their hearts what this does to the interpretation of Scripture. It should be obvious by now that one of the major confrontations that attends the battle over inerrancy centers about the interpretation of Scripture. No one is arguing that Scripture should not be studied to find out what the writer is saying. The problem is different from that. It is related to inerrancy, however. And it is also related to the historical critical methodology. One of the important questions in this discussion is what the writers of Scripture intended to do. Rudolf Bultmann illustrates the case beautifully. He has adopted the principle of demythologization. He is saying that the biblical accounts are not true history. One must go beyond the accounts in Scripture to find out what lies behind them. The Jesus of the Gospels is not the Jesus of history. What the Gospel writers say cannot be trusted as true history. Accretions, non-historical incidents and viewpoints, and unfounded opinions are all there. Scholars must find the core or bedrock truths that lie behind this facade. Evangelicals have always agreed that the writers of Scripture penned straight history and that what they wrote was true. Now some may argue that they wrote what they thought was true, but that we know better today. For example, the two gospel writers who gave us the account of the virgin birth believed what they wrote, but theirs was a pre-scientific age and we know better now. Cancel out the virgin birth since it is merely an effort to explain how the incarnation took place. Two of the gospel writers and the writer of the Chronicles give us genealogical tables. In two of these, the authors trace the origins of man back to the first man, Adam. But today we say that man is millions of years old, and the notion that the first man was Adam is nonsense. Paul speaks of Adam as the first Adam and of Jesus as the second Adam. But Paul is not speaking historically. He is using this idea of the first Adam as a model. So it is not straight-line history. And so on it goes. The New Hermeneutics Today there are evangelicals who, consciously or unconsciously, have drunk deep from the fountains of the New Hermeneutic. They no longer regard Scripture as true history. They place the findings of science above Scripture and make science the judge of the Word of God. They also have drunk the wine of German rationalism that has found its way into their bloodstream so as to influence and affect their thinking. They are earnest and sincere men. They think they are serving the kingdom of God wisely and well in this, their generation. They want men to be delivered from their ignorance and to enter into the new haven of advanced scholarship led by men with impeccable academic pedigrees rather than by men who are led of the Spirit of God and who have a spiritual discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit and not from doctorates. 
although the possession of a doctorate does not mean that those who have them, of necessity, have been corrupted. But it does mean that whatever it is that men drink from has a decisive influence upon them and generally conditions them forever. When inerrancy is lost, it is palpably easy to drift into a mood in which the historicity of scripture along with inerrancy is lost. And this drift is accompanied by the kind of thinking I encountered on the lecture circuit some years ago. One member of the Council of Churches in Indianapolis, Indiana, was expounding his beliefs about basic Christian doctrine. He readily admitted that Paul taught substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, and the second coming of Christ. Then he quickly and honestly said that he did not believe any of it. At least he knew what the apostle taught, but he wouldn't believe it. Evangelicals today need to return to a view of scripture that regards it as historical, and they need to be willing to believe what it says. The implications are clear. If this is done, then the questions about the authorship of Isaiah, Daniel, and Ephesians are resolved. Adam as the first man no longer becomes a problem, the Bible is taken at its face value, and the claims of scripture as to its own inspiration and inerrancy are the basis on which this approach is made. Errancy and Other Deviations Ethical and Moral I have said that history shows us where a belief in an errant scripture takes us in the long run. I have shown how errancy leads to further declines and how institutions and denominations fall away. As men retreat from inerrancy, they lose any vital interest in evangelism and missions. Their zeal for finishing the job of world evangelization is replaced by socio-political economic concerns. Their churches do not reach out even to the members of their own communities. How many first-rate evangelists and leading missionary lights have liberal theological seminaries turned out in the past 25 years? How many scholars have they nurtured who have arisen to defend the full trustworthiness of Scripture? How many of their graduates reflect the kind of life that demonstrates to a waiting world that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit? How was it possible for Union Theological Seminary and later the University of Chicago Divinity School to harbor on their faculties a leading scholar whose life was an uninterrupted series of adulteries known to them? How is it that when errancy begins to creep in among evangelicals it always is accompanied by ethical deceit and moral failure? Does not the case of Briggs at Union make only too clear how this operates? How is it possible for evangelical schools that are controlled by orthodox doctrinal statements knowingly to permit members of their faculties to teach what is contrary to their confessional commitments? How is it possible for faculty members of seminaries to sign doctrinal statements as though they believed what they signed, but to do it tongue-in-cheek? How is it possible for evangelical schools to keep on telling their constituencies that they really are evangelical with regard to scripture when they know they are not? Why don't institutions that have abandoned inerrancy in principle say so in such a way that people everywhere know this to be true? Why soft-pedal the change in position and pussyfoot around the issue? Among denominations, why do men who dissent from their confessions of faith remain within those denominations with the intention of subverting others? Would not honesty and integrity lead them to disassociate themselves from these denominations 
and go where they could honestly agree with the doctrinal commitments, or at least to places where there are no doctrinal commitments. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Ethical Dilemma Still another question begs for an answer. If liberal advocates are willing to fight against historic orthodoxy, why should not evangelicals in turn fight against the incursions of liberalism? Why is it not correct, indeed essential, for men like J.A.O. Prius to fight with all his might against those who do not believe the commitment of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, in favor of an inerrant scripture? I am not unmindful of the fact that wherever liberalism has fought, it has won. But right now the issue is by no means decided in the Missouri Synod battle. Right now the evangelicals have the edge in the battle. Will this be the first instance of a large denomination that was able to maintain its theological purity against doctrinal subversion? And how can its doctrinal purity be maintained if those who fight against it are not willing to confess their error, repent, and believe and teach what the denomination believes and teaches? or unless they are removed from the denomination so that the infection can be stopped. The latter is a hard and difficult decision, but the history of the denominations who have turned away from inerrancy shows that the failure to stop infection leads to further disruptions and ultimately to the control of those denominations by liberals who have never been known for their affection for believers in inerrancy. The Southern Baptist Infection the Southern Baptist Convention is another case in point. Probably 90% of the people in the pews believe in biblical infallibility. But the infection of which I speak has been spreading steadily in the convention and especially in its educational institutions. Among faculty members of Southern Baptist colleges and seminaries, where do you find articulate spokesmen who have come out in favor of inerrancy? The silence is deafening. Southern Baptists have not yet dealt with the matter decisively, yet it is true that when it has surfaced and the messengers to the annual conventions have had a chance to express their viewpoints, they have voted in favor of inerrancy. So far the people have said that they favor doctrinal integrity, but they have not yet said whether they favor this over denominational peace. Southern Baptists have stated repeatedly that Baptists are not a creedal people. Their cliché, no creed but the Bible, is well known. They always have favored freedom of interpretation. But when that freedom results in a denial of what Baptists have always believed, why then should the prostitution of that principle be allowed? The Sunday School Board some years ago defended Professor Elliot, for whom they had published a deviant book on the Old Testament. The board said, the Broadman Press ministers to the denomination in keeping with the historic Baptist principle of the freedom of the individual to interpret the Bible for himself, to hold a particular theory of inspiration of the Bible which seems most reasonable to him, and to develop his beliefs in accordance with that theory. But the convention overruled this view, and by this served notice that the people are not yet committed to apostasy. Sooner or later, Southern Baptists will have to decide whether a person can really be a Southern Baptist and develop his beliefs in accordance with his theory of inspiration. Does this mean anyone can continue to be a Southern Baptist and deny the virgin birth, or the deity of Christ, or the vicarious atonement, or the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, or the doctrine of the Trinity, 
or baptism by immersion, or the symbolic presence of Christ in the bread and wine of the communion table, or the congregational polity. If and when that happens, then Southern Baptists have ceased to be Baptists. They have ceased to be a people of the Bible. They have become inclusivists and are on the road to apostasy. Advocates of an Inerrant Scripture Not all Baptist denominations have been silent in the face of the inroads errancy has made in evangelical ranks. President Carl H. Lundquist of Bethel College and Seminary during the denomination's centennial year said this about the resolution passed by the Bethel Board of Regents. Quote, Bethel faculty has affirmed continuously its belief that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts. Beyond the question of inerrancy, our faculty is committed to the plenary inspiration and final authority of the Bible as the basis of all we teach on the campus. In the current religious climate in America, people are concerned about the position of the Bible taken by evangelical schools. The history of higher education generally has revealed a drift away from orthodoxy, Lundquist observed and noted that the theological liberalism originated with a faulty view of the scriptures. He said, Cleavages within evangelicalism have tended to foster suspicions in our day that oftentimes have been without basis in fact. End of quote. The Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary of Denver, Colorado, has consistently stated its position that scripture is God-breathed and therefore infallible, indefectible, and inerrant. It gives us divine truth without admixture of error. It gives us truth which is fixed, objective, and propositional. But other evangelical seminaries have not been so clear. At its founding, Fuller Seminary had for one of its express purposes the task of creating an apologetic literature in favor of biblical inerrancy. But it has officially abandoned that commitment and stands today for a limited inerrancy having to do with matters of faith and practice, but not extending to other areas of biblical revelation. The North Park Seminary of Chicago takes a position similar to that of Fuller. We already have seen that its faculty is overloaded with those who have abandoned inerrancy and is represented by only one biblical faculty member who opts for inerrancy. How long will it be before this denomination is pulled forever into the camp of liberalism if it follows the pattern that always has accompanied this struggle in past generations? Or will the people of this denomination who hold to infallibility exert their influence in such a way as to change the situation in order to retain their historical evangelical position? The Final Appeal it is my conviction that a host of those evangelicals who no longer hold to inerrancy are still relatively evangelical. I do not for one moment concede, however, that in a technical sense, anyone can claim the evangelical badge once he has abandoned inerrancy. The label evangelical has traditionally stood for a series of doctrinal convictions of which one has been biblical infallibility. Surely if the assertion that Christ is not God or that the atonement was not vicarious or that the virgin birth did not happen, or that Jesus is not coming again, or that Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, is reason to deny the badge evangelical, then he who denies the doctrine of infallibility, the only sure guarantee that these other doctrines are true, cannot truly be an evangelical. 
My appeal to evangelicals who at this moment have moved or are moving away from biblical inerrancy is for you to rethink the situation in light of the historical data and move back to a full commitment to this basic truth. It is highly unlikely that anyone can stop at a simple surrender of inerrancy without making more deadly concessions of a soteriological nature. It is true that a man can be a Christian without believing in inerrancy, but it is also true that down the road lie serious pitfalls into which such a denial leads. And even if this generation can forego inerrancy and remain more or less evangelical, history tells us that those who come after this generation will not do so. We have a responsibility for those who follow after us as well as for generations unborn. My appeal is also to those evangelicals who still hold to biblical inerrancy. I urge you to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. I urge you to dialogue with evangelicals who sit on the fence or have capitulated. I urge you to take whatever action is needed to secure a redress of this situation. I urge you to remember that godly men through the ages have come to the scriptures without advanced theological training and have been better interpreters and more spiritual leaders than many who have undergone the most rigorous theological training. I urge evangelicals in the pew to remember that a good word spoken in love to college and seminary professors may serve as a catalyst to call them back to fidelity to scripture. I urge you to remember that the so-called contradictions in Scripture do not stem from modern scholarship. These have been made known by critics ages ago and have been dealt with in a variety of effective ways. The case for biblical inerrancy is a strong one and answers to objectures have been made effectively for the past hundred years. I do not doubt that if evangelicals in concert with each other would stand firm and tall for biblical inerrancy and the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, a new day would dawn and the blessing of God would follow. I can foresee in that event a new surge of spiritual power, a new advance in the task of evangelizing the world, and the establishment of churches around the world where Christ is honored, the true gospel preached, and the kingdom of God manifested in holy power before the eyes of unconverted men. May the Lord speed that day. I do not look for or expect a time in history as we know it when the whole professing church will believe either in inerrancy or the major doctrines of the Christian faith. There will always be wheat and tares growing together until the angels begin their task of reaping the harvest at the end of the age. Truth shall forever be on the scaffold and wrong forever on the throne as long as time shall last. But whatever the cost, whatever the sacrifice, God calls his people to faithful service based upon an unsullied adherence to his word with the firm conviction that not one jot or tittle shall pass away until all has been fulfilled. When Jesus Christ comes, faith shall turn into sight, and what we do not now know, we shall know then. And when all of the mysteries of Scripture have been unlocked, we shall see what we have always believed, that the written word of God is free from all error, and all parts of it in some fashion or another bear witness to the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous branch, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the end of the book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.